Hello listeners, we're back for another episode. I'm Maria Back, and I'm your host. In this episode, I'm very happy to be sharing an interview I did with Andrew Satori, an intellectual historian at NYU. Andrew's focus is South Asian history, in which he explores how 17th century discourses of trade, credit, and money transform into the foundations for an anatomy of the social as a new object of systematic knowledge and how the political economy of commercial society developed specifically out of analyses of commercial practices that traversed boundaries of sovereignty and jurisdiction. The great economist John Maynard Keynes once wrote of the foolish things a man thinking alone can come temporarily to believe. Fortunately, I did not have to think alone. And neither do we. Welcome to Cetris Never Paribus, the History of Economic Thought podcast, where all other things are never equal. Thank you so much for agreeing to this interview. I've read quite a bit of your work for my during my PhD, and it, it helps me tremendously to get an understanding of, of South Asian intellectual history, especially in Bengal. So if you could just start by quickly just introducing yourself. I'm Andrew Sartori, and I'm Professor of History at New York University. Fantastic. All right, so my, my first question for you today is, how did you come to study South Asian intellectual history? Uh, that is an extremely good question, to which I don't honestly have a very good answer. It was a series of fairly contingent circumstantial decisions that happened when I was an undergraduate. I was a history major, and... I saw a class being offered uh, on South Asian history, and uh, I enrolled in it on a whim. I'd never had any interest in India particularly. And um, it was taught by um, someone by the name of Deepesh Chakrabarti, and the class was just really uh, extremely interesting to me. And so... Uh, that led to another class, and that led to some language study, and that led to an MA, and then that led to graduate school. You know, it was one of those calculus-type problems <laughs> <laughs> whereby suddenly you find yourself heading in a new direction, and when you look back, you realize it was just a series of fairly small incremental changes. And so by the time I was applying to graduate school, it was clear that it was going to be in South Asian history just because of what I had done before. And uh, so at that point, uh, I entered South Asian history. But uh, I guess why intellectual history? I'm not actually sure there is an answer to that. And it's, it's weird, because when I started doing it, it seemed self-evident that these were the problems I was interested in. But it was also the case that there wasn't actually a field of intellectual history in South Asian studies. There was a field of Oriental orientalist studies um not in the you know evil sense of the word orientalist just in the sense of area studies um and that tradition to the extent that it it was an intellectual history was also one that was largely or intensely textualist and was dealing with a body of literature that was often uh, extremely intent on not presenting itself in time. You know, part of the tradition in Sanskrit literature, for example, is to efface a relationship to context or time outside of a body of textual tradition. So, and then there was, of course, a history of hagiography and uh, in the nationalist tradition. 
And there was a history of colonial intellectual history, people like Eric Stokes or Ramajit Guha. But in terms of actually doing the intellectual history of South Asia, uh, I was told on many occasions that there is no such field. So, <laughs> uh, but I was also um, just, I guess, not intelligent enough to respond to that feedback and just uh, plowed on anyway. Yeah, do it anyway. Well, exactly. I, along with many others, am very thankful that you did. <laughs> well, by the time I was done, there was a field. You know, it, it was clearly something conjunctural uh, beyond my you know, beyond my immediate field of recognition, because by the time I was finished, uh, there were a number of people who were interested in, in South Asian intellectual history that I had no contact with until I was already completing, at which point there was suddenly, I was part of a, a world of people who were interested in this. So timing is everything. Yeah, I, I agree. I, I, I kind of found myself in a similar situation in the history of economics, where nothing was going on in, in Indian history of Indian economics when I started. And then slowly but surely, there, there's more and more people. It's still a very small group, but yeah, there's some. I guess there's some, just something that you, through professors like Shakrabarti, who, who, who you had and so on, you get, you get influenced in certain ways and that then influences more people and so on. And then a group kind of merges together almost what looks like accidentally, but, but not really. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. I think that's a good answer to, to that question. I mean, I think we all have uh, the similar stories where, where it's always incremental change that leads us somewhere. And there's always these key moments that push us in one direction or the other. I mean, I started getting interested in India through microfinance. Uh-huh, right. Just because a friend found an article about it and said, you probably will be interested in this. Right. <laughs> that was it, you know. Right. Uh, yeah. Right, exactly, um, exactly. And then it just so happened to fit into my other interests, you know, so. Well, but there's two ways into the field, and uh, this really struck me when I came to the United States, uh, because when I arrived in the United States, I was coming from the Australian academic system, which, more like the UK academic system, is very much a, a an isolated uh, way of doing research. And I arrived in the US where graduate programs are organized around multiple years of collective graduate teaching and cohort based learning. And I arrived at Chicago, which had a fairly large, you know, South Asia universe. And uh, there were all these people who were really embedded in very identified with South Asia, even if they were not themselves South Asia, they would talk about where to get the right pun and, you know, what the best songs were from whichever Hindi movie they'd happened to have been watching. And uh, I didn't know anything about this. And it, it became very clear to me that there was a there was a track of people who entered into South Asia because they had been to South Asia or they had had some kind of experience of it. And then they'd become interested in it that way. And there was another track, which was the track I was on, which was the, oh, South Asia is what I do because it was through a series of accidents, a space where I could ask the questions that I was interested in asking. And it was, it was at first kind of terrifying <laughs> to be surrounded by people who just clearly knew so much more than I did um, about what I was ostensibly supposed to become an expert in. 
that, you know, now, of course, I think to myself, those people still know way more than I do about what I was ostensibly supposed to be an expert in. But, you know, they're different ways and, and they, they speak to different ways of thinking about, you know, the area. Yeah, and that's uh, that's what also makes the field more interesting if we mm-hmm. have different approaches to it. Mm-hmm. If those, if if it's just different motivations or in, intentions with, yeah, different motivations for doing similar, um, asking similar questions. Right. The second question I had for you was what you kind of labeled to do with connected histories, and so perhaps you could start by explaining to me what you mean by this idea of connected histories, because I had asked. Uh, a couple of questions on how um, how did the imperial education affect um, the B- Bengali intellectuals that you look at? Did the Indian graduates at these imperial universities in Britain get to meet some of the you know English political mm-hmm. economists, etc.? These kinds of very um, on the ground uh-huh. uh, instances of connection between India and and Europe, which I struggle with a lot in my research and I get asked a lot now this mm-hmm. is from European uh, historians of economics and and so and, and and you had mentioned that while this is connected history this is not what I do and so perhaps as I said let's start by you telling me what you mean by that connected histories and then uh, and then we can go from there so I think that you know in South Asian history connected history is a term that was I don't know if it was invented by but it was popularized by an article in the Journal of Asian Studies by uh, Sanjay Subramaniam back in, I think, uh, the late late 90s, maybe, called, I think, Connected Histories or something <laughs> like that, in which he was basically saying uh, that there is a kind of naive comparativism that often organizes study across regions, that the comparison is premised on the notion that you can treat the histories of, uh, say, India and Europe as if they are, I don't know, for want of a better word, independent variables, but that the way in which one of the consequences of thinking in those terms is that the questions we tend to ask of India tend to be set in fairly predictable and stereotyped ways because the terms of posing the question are always ones that arise, as it were, from a set of categories which preset the way we approach the object. And instead, he says, what about if we think about these areas not as discrete, but rather as bound up in complicated relationships of connection? And if we focus on connections, then the, the, the phenomena that might be lost in the conventional kinds of questions that a naive comparative history would lead us to might actually become more interesting. So in his case, if I recall the article, which is, it's been a while, but uh, is about millenarianism in the 16th century and looking at the way in which millennial preoccupations are uh, operating across a kind of large swathe of Eurasian imperial space. And so in his case, uh, he's interested in the way in which certain things become thinkable if you think about them in terms of connection. It's not actually, as it's often read to be, an anti-comparativist argument. It's rather an argument that comparison has to proceed from a recognition that that uh, we don't already know what the useful categories for comparing are. Hmm. 
Now that is that was a you know an extremely useful intervention when it was made, and it remains a obviously crucial thing to to keep in mind. I mean, the problem is where do we find connection? For me, so when I when I say that I'm not really a uh, a connected history scholar, it's not that I I am not interested in the fact of connection, but rather it's that historians of connected histories most often want to look at forms of connection that are relatively directly visible in the archives. So, for example, it's true that Subramaniam can't show actual connections, you know, amongst different forms of millennial thought. The conjuncture that he's reconstructing is largely based on, if you will, circumstantial evidence. But nonetheless, it's millennialism, so it is actually something that is operating at at the level of discourse. People are actually thinking about eschatology or time and history, and that's how they're being brought into relation to each other. And in that sense, the the actual direct points of contact are the the generative ones amongst, as it were. Uh, conscious human agents. Uh, but there's another set of connections which are much less visible to historical agents that might operate at a greater distance from experience, but might not therefore be any less important. Uh, so, for example, if one thinks about the ways in which the kinds of early modern commercial expansion that is operating across, as we know, vast swathes of, of the old world. Um, if that kind of expansion is changing the conditions under which people live, then even though the process through which people's experience of institutions, norms, the meaning of commercial exchange might be changing, it's not the case that what's actually important about those transformations is whether someone in Bengal is talking to someone in France about the significance of landed property or about, you know, the desirability of free trade. So, so in that sense, the, the connection would matter there, not because of connected, not because of connection in its more conventional sense, but because a conversation becomes possible because there's a set of problems which aren't the same but are related to each other because the conditions that generate those sets of problems are connected conditions. So in other words, commercialization in 18th century Bengal doesn't look like commercialization in 18th century England. But the possibility that a commercialization, that the discussion of commercialization in England in the 18th century might become relevant, useful to think with in Bengal, is something that is opened up by the fact that, that there are, as it were, connected processes that are generating new problems that require new ways to talk about them. So that's, that's more or less the, so in other words, if I can find that a Bengali 
in the 19th century, you know, that if I can show, as it's very easy to show, that Ramahan Roy and, uh, you know, a bunch of people in England exchange letters that, you know, Bentham and Ramahan Roy exchange fairly meaningless letters, um, then that's interesting. It's a kind of point of departure, but it's really only a point of departure for asking some of the questions that I think are more interesting. And they're more interesting not because connection doesn't matter in lots of cases in the conventional sense, but because these forms of connection are much harder to figure out how to narrate historically because they're much more resistant to uh, straightforward archival reconstruction as if uh, archival reconstruction is straightforward in itself. (laughs) But they're even more resistant, if you will, Uh, And so they present certain kinds of strategic problems on how it is one could think about this as a field of inquiry, given that you're never going to get an archive that uh, can directly address the problem as I just posted. Yeah, I see what you're saying. I I like that idea that it's a point of departure, that that physical connection that we find through letters or um, Mm -hmm. travel um, diaries, etc. is just a it's just the start and then the, it's the protect. much more interesting to look at the contextual issues that are going on that are making these connections uh, happen in the first place. Because, so, let's say that it turns out that uh, the authors of The Indian Economist are obviously reading The Economist, and so we know that they probably are doing more than reading. Let's say maybe they're corresponding, maybe there's some, you know, more robust relationship. But the real question, although it is interesting to think about what it means for the Indian economist to be published in direct reference to The Economist as a magazine or whatever, periodical, it's also to, uh, it's also necessary to ask the question, so some people in India read The Economist and think we should have an Indian economist, but, but what is it about the project of economics as articulated in its kind of everyday form in The Economist that speaks to these particularly situated Indian actors? You can't actually explain that on the basis of the contact. There's some prior set of problems that says that, that Indian actors situated in particular places and particular social locations think that it's a good idea to develop economic forms of inquiry in India and for India. How do we think about that problem? How does that emerge as a field of inquiry uh, that makes sense to, to, to Indians, given that it's not, it's, it's not clear that um, 17th century, their 17th century ancestors had the same kind of itch, concern, or impulse, (laughs) right? So uh, there's a much larger problem that I feel like it's very easy to lose sight of if you immediately hone in on the, the, the immediacy of human contact, even though, of course, there's something extremely appealing about honing in on the immediacy of human contact. And that's these larger questions about the conditions of contact, the conditions of connection and exchange. Uh, what is it that makes it possible for people to interact in such a way that 
the interaction is productive in interesting historical ways. Yeah, this. I mean, this reminds me also of the idea that these actors in India at the time were imperial subjects and weren't had voices that weren't quite as loud, if you want to put it that way, as as the European political economists at the time. Absolutely. Which is a context that is so important to understand while analyzing the text. Yeah. Yeah. But it's also true that there is a, a massive asymmetry, you know, being um, John Stuart Mill and being one of the authors in The Indian Economist are not... Or, you know, being Badgett, let's say, and being being uh, one of the authors of The Indian Economist are not remotely comparable in terms of, as you say, the the, the, the volume uh, with which uh, you speak. And so it's reasonable to say that the degree to which The Indian Economist is referencing The Economist is completely, uh, un, you know, is, is not at all mirrored. <laughs> In, a, in an inverse relationship, right? The economist doesn't care whether the Indian economist exists or not. Well, I'm sure it's chuffed, but it's, it, uh, it doesn't matter intellectually for them. And, and so that's, that's definitely true. And there's a whole series of, of um, relationships that are built into that. But it shouldn't lead us to conclude that because of that asymmetry, that Indian actors um, don't come at the problems that they're framing uh, with a sense of, of real intellectual commitment and substance, right? So there is a long tradition of treating this as kind of an echo. Absolutely. You know, uh, actually, there's, and, and I don't, I, you know, I don't think that is a particularly uh, compelling way of thinking about what people who are grappling with economic problems in colonial India are in fact doing. And we can see this at the level of the fact that they develop sometimes, uh, you know, not singular, but specific emphases and particular kinds of questions, particular kinds of problems, particular ways of framing economic thought, which may echo, uh, may uh, resonate with what's happening elsewhere, but which are clearly driven by situated preoccupations, right? Um, they're not just, they're not just reading whatever the latest in England is and then repeating it. Um, uh, and if they are finding their way to other econ uh, economic traditions, like, for example, a certain stereotype Germany, then they're doing that because of their preoccupations, right? It's because they have some set of problems that they're looking to Italy or Germany as a way of framing, or Japan, as a way of framing or thinking about. About their own issues. About their own concerns, yeah. This is great, because this um, brings me on to the kind of third thing that I wanted to talk about, which was this idea of a distinct Indian economic thinking. And I think, f for me, when I read your work, you were kind of one of the few that I found really convincing about this point, that it is not, it's not a good idea to overemphasize the idea that they were in inferior thinkers mm -hmm. to the European ones, because that then put, puts us in a corner where we where we just assume that they echo or they copy um, existing economic thinking or political thinking, um, whichever subject you're looking at. And and I and I one of the things that I uh, do the most in my in my work is trying to um, trying to convince my readers that they 
that the Indian economists in the late 19th century produced an Indian idea of development. Now, that that's uh-huh. not to say that they completely reinvented the wheel, but that's, you know, if you if you understand anything to do with meaning-making, that's pretty much impossible for any kind of thinker to right. invest, invent right. anything um, from scratch. Exactly. So I, I believe that you do come up with these ideas, distinct, distinct Indian um, characteristics among, for example, the Bengali intellectuals that you look at. But mm. you But you did mention that perhaps that you didn't find that idea of looking for a distinct Indian idea so useful. Um, so perhaps you could discuss those two points. So A, do you, do you find Indian characteristics in, in, the, in the Bengali intellectuals? And, and B, why, do you, why does that, isn't that necessarily the way you would say it? Uh-huh. Uh, so uh, not to sound too much like an academic, but it all depends what you mean by distinct. <laughs> um, uh, so what I argued in my first book was that even if it's not the case that what Bengali intellectuals generated was singular and did not, you know, even if it failed to renounce alien influences, even if it claimed that it did, uh, and was in fact operating in a, around a set of problems that were shared across uh, multiple geographical spaces in the 19th century. Um, it's not the case that that means that they're not distinctive or autonomous. And autonomy here meaning a very weak sense of autonomy, just in the sense that, you know, to receive a set of thoughts, to say that while these discussions about, in that case, uh, ideas of of culture and autonomy, uh, to receive that conversation which is happening in, you know, France and Germany and England, among other places, and to turn it into something that can mean something to you in a place that is far, far away from England, right? Um, and to say that this is a, a useful way of framing a set of problems that we have, is an exercise in reception. And the result isn't necessarily... It's true that what a lot of writing emphasizes, which is that when you receive something, you typically alter it. But even if that's not true, right? Even if the way I receive uh, culture criticism of the late 19th century in Bengal is essentially completely the same in its basic formal apparatus as culture criticism anywhere else, it's still a creative exercise because I still have to turn this way of this set of concepts into a way of talking about a situation that isn't the one that they were originally set in motion to talk about. So in that sense, reception is already its own form of distinctiveness. That's sort of the first point I would make. Uh, so it's possible, in other words to say that Bengalis are writing about culture criticism in the light of all of these other places uh, where they are also grappling with, with this problem. But the result is actually a tradition of thinking about culture in Bengal in a way that makes those, those sets of problems relevant to us as we sit in late 19th century, you know, Calcutta or Dhaka or wherever we are. Um, so that's one meaning of distinctiveness, but it's a meaning of distinctiveness that that doesn't lie at the level of the formal content of what's actually being written or said. 
right? Uh, it's not necessarily the case that the concept of culture that Bengalis elaborate in the late 19th century is so radically different from the concept of culture that uh, is being articulated by, I don't know, Coleridge. It's not necessarily so dramatically different. The, the next step is to say that those Bengali intellectuals nonetheless do in fact make it their own and they work pretty hard to make it their own, not just at the level of saying that this matters to us and it should matter to us and it helps us understand something and resolve some kind of practical problem that we're grappling with, but also that we need to find an idiom for talking about this that belongs to us. And so in that sense, what I wrote about in that book is also the way in which there's all these attempts to, uh, to re-articulate the problematic of culture as, a, as an Indian problem and specifically a Hindu problem. And so then there is an attempt to, to take up all of these various uh, existing philosophical languages or theological languages Shaktism, Vaishnavism, uh, Vedanta, and so on, and use them as ways of, uh, of uh, embedding these problems in a different language that happens to be a Hindu and Indian one. And, and so that process produces a distinctive idiom, uh, because obviously, instead of saying we are uh, culture critics, maybe what we say is we are Vaishnavites or we are uh, Vedantists. Uh, and that then, you know, uh, is its own form of, of distinctiveness. It actually doesn't necessarily mean that the formal structure of the discourse is actually radically different from the Vedanta-free culture criticism of... Uh, of someone based in England, of Matthew Arnold or something like that. But nonetheless, it obviously takes on its own distinctiveness. And it's also true that it may well also be, uh, I don't really have any interest in denying this, that, that there are very specific kinds of uh, further preoccupations that do in fact get dragged into culture criticism that are in fact quite specific to India, because if I say that the way to think culture criticism is uh, through Vedanta, then obviously what I've done is I have brought Vedanta onto the table and I'm not doing, you know, in some cases, Vedanta is just a kind of empty uh, placeholder. In other cases, people are very serious scholars uh, who have spent a lot of time reading texts and thinking about what they mean and grappling with with uh, a sort of intense scholarly tradition. And as a result, uh, there might be all sorts of ways in which there are elements that you could say are genuinely distinctive uh, in the way that Bengalis end up thinking about culture or particular Bengalis end up thinking about culture uh, because they are thinking about it through the lens of whatever uh, way they're trying to construe it. But the point at which I am, I tend to, to not deny, but push back a little is that because in South Asian history, there is a really strong impulse to find difference 
rather than specificity. And what I mean by that is that, you know, if you look at the way, so in, in something like the field of political theory, for example, there is an emergent field of comparative political theory. And uh, out, when, when people who aren't comparative political theorists look at comparative political theory, if you say to them, I study some aspect of Indian political thought, the basis upon which they're most likely to find that an interesting project is on the assumption that Indian political thought will present political ideas that are really different from the quote-unquote Western canon. And uh, that's the job of South Asia, is to not be like Europe. And I guess that's self-evidently the case. I mean, South Asia is not like Europe in all sorts of ways. Um, but it also means that all of, the pro all of the questions that revolve around the ways in which South Asian political thought does grapple with problems that are present in the political thought of other places in the 19th and 20th centuries kind of gets pushed to the side. It's boring that someone is trying to work in the liberal tradition or that someone is trying to work in the socialist tradition unless you can show that their liberalism is really, really something else in some particular way. But what if, what if it's just interesting that someone who is sitting in a context that is self-evidently really different from the context in which uh, 19th century uh, British liberals were working within, nonetheless discovers that uh, liberal ideas are salient, relevant, and compelling to their own context. Like, wouldn't it be actually more interesting that they weren't distinctive? How is it that they managed to take this body of ideas and elaborate them as if they matter to a place that is so self-evidently different. Now, I'm not saying that anyone has ever done that, like, complete, straightforward transfer, but I'm just, as a thought experiment, I feel like in some ways it would be more interesting and more surprising if someone was able to take an entire package of ideas from a context that is self-evidently so dramatically different and then just unpack them here, right, uh, in this other place as if they mattered and show that they are in fact a compelling basis upon which to imagine futures and make normative judgments. So in that sense, I guess when people go straight for the difference, it's not that I have, a, have any reason to deny that South Asian political thought or intellectual history more generally isn't distinctive and may not be characterized by, by forms of, of different forms of, of concept formation or preoccupation or norm, but that it's, it's a highly motivated emphasis right, to look for the difference as if that's always the most interesting or compelling or important thing. And that maybe if we don't, if we don't occupy the kind of uh, developmentalist assumptions that 1980 scholarship was trying to break out of, then maybe what's interesting is looking at transfers of knowledge, uh, forms of knowledge, protocols, and concepts 
and being surprised by the ability for people in different locations to find common concepts and common protocols and common arguments and debates relevant despite the clear uh, differences in experience that uh, present themselves in different locations. Yeah, and I think that links to what you were saying at the beginning that you know the reception of something is is creative. Yeah, it's it's a creative process. Exactly. It reminds me also of Baba's work, um, talking about how imperialism makes its subjects both invisible and different. Mm-hmm. And so when when the Indian intellectuals during the imperial era wanted to talk about India, well, they didn't want to be invisible, so they, they argued that they were different in order to exist. Right. To, so it's it's probably also a, a, an imperial legacy that that that, that, that our, our discipline, our disciplines continue to emphasize the difference rather than saying, well, perhaps there's a bit of both and both mm-hmm. are equally as interesting to deal with. I think that's probably correct, that there is a kind of of anxiety of existence (laughs) yeah that is that is at the core of this sort of insistence and you know it's it's a two-sided thing because it is that it that is actually accurate in the very sort of um stereotype story i told earlier about this this imaginary political theorist who works on i don't know hume um who if asked why should you know you know if told oh i work on indian political thought says oh well that's very interesting i would imagine that's a very different field of inquiry it is true that 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 the the european political theorist i think i mean i'm stereotyping but i think it's probably true that the european political theorist is more likely to find it interesting if you can say that uh what's looked at here is different and so, uh, so in some sense, it, it, it has a kind of uh, a reality to it, right? That, that the argument for difference is a way of eliciting recognition. But that's not necessarily great grounds for framing an intellectual project. Yeah, and, 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 and leaving it a project open for multiple conclusions. Right, <laughs> exactly. The last thing that I wanted to talk to you about was a recent book that you edited called The Ends of History, you talk about new ways of, of reading history. For example, you say to, you, you hope to make history more historicist, arguing, for example, that, you know, in one of the chapters, some of your, some, some of the um, scholar has written about moving away from national belonging to the spatiality of networks. Um, and, and, and then another chapter talks about how the um the the importance of reflecting on the historian's role while Mm. doing history while doing research so i wonder if you could perhaps talk about what you mean by this new ways of reading history and what your um kind of hopes are for this for this these new approaches i think that that was a attempt to think about a set of developments largely in literary studies and uh, within that, within that history, uh, within that field, there is a, an enormous emphasis in in some traditions that are some new sort of forms of analysis that pushes back against broadly the hermeneutics of suspicion, uh, the idea of context, the notion of depth versus surface, 
Um, so some of the, the, the approaches that we're think that, that we were talking about in that essay were ideas about surface reading, a new kind of formalism that attends to the text rather than trying to dig out the historical meanings of the text by placing the text in quote unquote context. Also, uh, sort of, um, distance reading, which is an attempt to, instead of doing kind of close, careful readings of particular texts, try to use new technologies to grapple with large-scale patterning uh, across large amounts of literature, uh, so characterizing bodies of literature rather than moving deeply into particular texts. And these are all... So what we were trying to say in, in that introduction is that these are all, you know, generative and creative approaches, but the question of historicization doesn't so easily go away, even if one thinks that these are novel and interesting. Uh, so, you know, uh, you asked me uh, in uh, email exchange about quantitative methods, for example. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Um, so, I, you know, it's not a question of whether quantitative methods are good or bad. I, I actually have spent several years now supporting the claim that we need more quantitative methods in historical study, not less, um, that that's a de-skilling that needs to be reversed. But there is a question of where quantitative methods work and where they don't. <laughs> and so the question of how to quantify has always turned on the question of how to produce data that is quantifiable. And in some cases, we can produce data that is quantifiable. And in some cases, when we attempt to produce data that's quantifiable, the result is crap on the basis of the uh, ancient statistical princ principle that what you get out depends on what you put in, <laughs> right? So in that sense, we need to not make a choice between qualitative, qualitative and quantitative data we don't have to choose between distance reading and close reading. We need to think about what kinds of questions distance reading can work for uh, and what kinds of problems it can't. In the same way as we need to think about where would quantitative, quantitative techniques help us think through historical problems and where would uh, some kind of uh, hierarchical relation between quantitative and qualitative be an obstacle to thinking out certain problems. Because the thing about historical inquiry is that outside of very specific fields of, of inquiry, uh, our data is mostly terrible. Right? That's what historical archives are. They're, they're usually incredibly flawed, best case scenario, incredibly flawed sources of information. And so to produce the kinds of bodies of data that, that make meaningful quantitative inquiry possible or useful uh, only really applies to very specific cases, both geographically, temporally, and thematically. And it's also the case that uh, I think the example maybe we gave in that article, that there are certain kinds of data of, of archives which are plentiful, like literary archives, but where it's extremely difficult to know how to quantify precisely because the amount of coding that you need to do to be able to render a text 
decodable in distance terms is actually involves an extraordinarily amount uh, extraordinarily intense amount of close reading labor right um because of the substitutability of pronouns which have to be contextually determined synonyms and so on you know actually figuring out when a particular category person or thing is being talked about is not so easy without doing a careful process of internal coding on each text at which point the ostensible advantage of distance reading is largely lost because are you really going to do detailed careful coding internal to enough texts uh, to be able to make a distance reading on the basis of that careful close reading and so uh i you know it's about trying to figure out how to proliferate approaches and methods and open up new ways of reading uh but in a way that doesn't sort of fall down the rabbit hole of easy polemics uh about uh whether the question of context and history can be set aside uh uh as if it's not a problem or not a question so that was the 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 thrust of that paper it's very similar to the discussions we're having at the moment in history of economics where the when more and more papers are coming out using quantitative methods which is very very new to our field uh -huh. And the and the older um, generation are very scared, I would say, more than anything else, <laughs> about this development. Mm -hmm. um, but but then again, I think the younger generation and and myself included have having been trained as an economist before going into my PhD in international mm -hmm. political economy. I was so insistent at the beginning of using quantitative methods. Yeah. To the point where. My supervisor said to me, but you can't just, you shouldn't just use these methods because, right? Because, you know, as an economist, you, you've been taught that that's the uh -huh. better way and that, you know, and, 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 and clearly I was trying to find these quantitative methods because I knew that would give me more legitimacy in economics, which is, yeah, which is where I'd like to be. And, and so I think the younger generation also has an issue with, with what you were just saying, perhaps not thinking uh, enough about which questions, uh, which questions can be answered, but with quantitative methods, and which can be answered um, through qualitative um, methods. Right. And then there's a whole discussion about whether they're even if you can do mixed methods, if those are compatible, mm -hmm. so on, which is which is a whole which is a whole another can of worms. But well, I think that uh, in the case of historical inquiry, mixed methods are an inevitable part of the process uh because i mean first of all you have to think of this in terms of the last 50 years in history anyway because in history in the era of social history quantitative methods were fundamental right that's what social history to a to a substantial proportion of social history was quantitative in orientation because it was essentially an attempt to capture the experience of people who left no documents um, of their own other than sort of registries, right? So the aim was to reconstruct the historical experience of the historically voiceless. And the way you did that was by counting, you know, <laughs> that was, and then in the 1980s, when there was a sort of substantial turn towards cultural history, a lot of that set of skills gradually began to die out. It just wasn't reproduced within the discipline. And the, the, this was also the point at which entire departments called the Department of Economic History were shut down 
and economic history began to shift out of history into you know clear metrics and economics departments and so there were there were entire sets of problems and conversations that not only stopped or faded but also where the skills for being able to carry on those conversations cease to be reproduced so there's relatively few historians today who have the quantitative skills to be able to um, do serious quantitative work, which clearly needs to be remediated. Um, that There's no question about that. But because the data for, for many places in the world, because the data that's available is uh, incomplete at best, or where there is data, it is... Um, it is itself potentially misleading because it counts certain things, but it doesn't count certain other things, right? Um, I mean, for example, in the South Asian context, if one uses colonial records to determine the scale of um, textile production, then you get a very partial vision of what textile production in South Asia actually looked like because you're only looking at uh, the movement of textile goods through a uh, company records and therefore you have no way of thinking about the question of where else are textiles moving <laughs> right yeah um so so in that case that's not an argument for not doing quantitative analysis it's an argument for doing quantitative analysis informed by qualitative research into the nature of the numbers that you're studying and conversely using quantitative research results as the basis for qualitative inquiries into more incomplete data that might yield results to qualitative research that it wouldn't yield to quantitative research. So it's that back and forth that I think needs to be, needs to be uh, recovered and it can only be recovered either through people in um, social science disciplines moving into historical research like yourself and through some kind of reskilling um, of historians, I, we definitely need more um, methods classes in PhDs in in Europe. <laughs> mm -hmm. Just in general, I I think yeah. personally. I mean, in economics, mm -hmm. it's pretty um, it's it's done quite well because it's based on the uh, American model, which is what you described earlier in the interview. Right. This very it's it's a it's an intense training. But I mean, I right. had I had very very little training in qualitative methods which is right what was more right. appropriate for my thesis in the end and then that's right we, me and a few colleagues actually colleagues in this podcast have set up workshops and so on to try and uh -huh. try and inform ourselves about about methods because the right. the discipline as a whole in history of economics actually which i is probably quite similar in history is um kind of denies this need for rigid methodological thinking or, mm -hmm. or you know whereas in in political economy where i was it was just so um necessary for me to write a chapter on my on my methodological right. framework and well this has been fantastic andrew thank you so much thank you very much thank you for listening we hope you enjoyed this episode enough to come back for more the featured music is called Knowing Nothing by Mid-Air Machine and our intro features Paul Krugman at his Nobel Prize banquet speech in 2008. Thank you to Nobel Media AB for giving us the permission to use the audio.
check out our website cetrusneverparabus.net for more information. Follow us on Twitter, Cetrus N Paribus, and listen to more episodes on iTunes or your favourite podcast app.